0: seeing the long-term effects of the disintegration of the family, the disintegration of our sense of community, one with the other, the effects of social media addiction. All of these things are at last, as it were, colliding together to produce enormous unsettlement and confusion. People don't know who they are because they don't really know in a sense, who their families are, who their tribes are, what they're part of and so on and so forth. And then the whole gender theory stuff comes in further to confuse them and to actually sanctify their confusion in a way by, by saying, no, actually what you're feeling, this is the solution to what you're feeling. So I think the thing here, once again, is not to be distracted by the symptoms. Uh, what people fundamentally need is to be part of the community of the church that is centered around the lordship of Christ.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Union Podcast. My name is Brian Pugh. I am the co-founder of The Union Movement, alongside my wife, Bonnie. And uh, here at The Union, we are just really passionate about helping people uh, find wholeness in sexuality, identity, and relationships uh, with a gospel-centered, biblical, and holistic approach. And we hope that this podcast is uh, insightful and is helpful encouraging uh, just what you need <laughs> where you are right now um, to help you find that that wholeness and that um, really that healing and that, on all those areas and it's really even really the tools uh, to walk out the beauty um, that God intends for all uh, those dynamics of the human experience we're so thankful you have joined us here today I am sitting down with Dr. Ian Provin. And uh, we've got quite the conversation for you, quite the episode. Um, Dr. Pravin is a uh, professor at Regent College here in Vancouver, BC, and he carries a PhD from the University of Cambridge, um, where he you know, did a lot of his study before he moved over uh, to Canada uh, in 1997 with his family. Um, Honestly, Dr. Proven is just a brilliant, a brilliant man, has got a great perspective on a lot of the challenges we are facing in culture today. And that's really his his kind of sweet spot is like where does the Bible, where does the gospel message and theology, where does it intersect with contemporary culture? and um, and today we sit down and we talk about uh, gender theory, talk about freedom of speech. And oddly enough, we talk about the book nineteen eighty four. Um, I know this podcast episode is going to be, it's going to be kind of a uh, cage rattler. I think it's going to be pretty um, eye opening to a lot of the things that we're facing uh, today in society, uh, specifically in Canada um, with, you know, bills like Bill C4 that's, um, you know, bringing some pretty strong punishment to conversion therapy when conversion therapy isn't actually defined very clearly and accurately within the bill. I don't want to get ahead of myself. We're going to discuss that within the episode. Um but yeah, it's pretty eye-opening and I think it should move us to compassion uh for people uh who are caught up in gender dysphoria, yet it needs to move us to action. Uh, for those who would actually try to come up with policy that doesn't actually help those people and actually does more harm than good. Um, So anyways, without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Ian Provin. I'm so excited uh, to be sitting down here with Dr. Ian Provin. And uh, we are going to have a great conversation today. And we're going to be talking about just some light stuff, really light topic of gender theory. And the changing social landscapes today. Um, but uh, first of all, Doctor Provin, Provin, thank you so much for joining us here on the Union Podcast.
0: That's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: So obviously, you uh, you know you're part of faculty and you're a professor at uh, Regent College here in Vancouver, BC. But as many of us would probably tell, your accent is not Vancouver right. <laughs> so tell us a little, bit about, a little bit about your story and how how you ended up came, coming to Canada with your family and a little bit about your family and the kind of the ministry that you do.
0: Sure. Well, I grew up in Scotland, uh, quite near to Glasgow. That's the biggest city people would probably know. Um, I came from a small town, though, nearby. Uh, Did my education in the UK. Um, Met my wife at Bible College uh, when we were both there. Um, We uh, worked in a church full time for, for two years before... Uh, One of my mentors suggested I should really go back and do further work, graduate work. And so that set the direction, really, for what came next. Um, I was fortunate to get uh, two or three jobs in uh, the British university system. And in 1997, Regent College asked me if I would consider coming over and uh, being part of that community. And we decided that was the right thing. and. We had four children by that point. Um, So it was a big deal uh, moving, of course. Um, But I'm happy to say that we flourished here. The kids continue to do well. And um, it's been a pretty good 25 years over on this side of the Atlantic.
1: Yeah. Well, that's awesome. And amongst all your qualification and everything, you're also a highly qualified soccer coach. (laughs) I am. Although... (laughs) I'm now a retired, highly qualified soccer <laughs> coach. <laughs> Great. That's awesome. So within the work of ministry that you do at Regent College, like what what is kind of your scope and your, your focus and the work that you do there?
0: Well, my job is actually, it has the title of professor of biblical studies. And within that, largely Old Testament studies, that's really where I'm coming at everything from. That's the lens. But Mm -hmm. region is a fairly interdisciplinary kind of place. And um, inevitably, therefore, I'm involved in all kinds of other conversations and other kinds of courses that are more integrative in nature. And a lot of my writing has, in the last 10 years or so, has really been at the intersection of Bible culture, politics, um, trying to help people to see how biblical faith speaks to the whole of life. Uh, Trying to encourage people not to adopt narrow or dualistic versions of Christian faith, but to really believe the idea that if the gospel is true, then it's true about everything and not just about Mm -hmm. a few favorite things.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, the church hasn't had its pet doctrines, have they? Well, everyone (laughs) has their
0: pet doctrines. And as I've sometimes joked with students, we're all to some extent recovering heretics, you know, so that's right. <laughs> um, not because we, what we believe is necessarily wrong, although it can be, but sometimes it's just too narrow. It's not sufficiently integrated with other things which are true. And, mm-hmm. and so we, we, we can sometimes go off track in that way, not because we're wrong, but because we're not sufficiently right. Yeah, if I can put it, put it that way.
1: That's right. There's so much that needs to be held in tension, right? There's the beauty of doctrines that complement each other and truth that complements each other. And if you mess with one, you ruin the other side too. So,
0: well, you do. And the, the history of heresy in the church is largely the history of oversimplification. Right. I mean, it's you know, I mean, the Trinity is necessarily a mysterious doctrine. And when people try to apply rigorous logic to this or that bit of it, they have tended to go astray for that reason. so mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, very true. Very true. Well, uh, we met at the presentation you were doing for the the ACLN, um, a Christian leaders network in um, uh, nearby the, the area where I live. And you were doing the presentation on Bill C-4 and uh, a piece of legislation that came through Uh, the Canadian federal on the Canadian federal level around uh, gender three. But for for those um, or conversion therapy, excuse me, but but for those who are listening um, who might not have a context or an understanding of this bill, can you can you boil down the bill for us or just kind of give us that bigger perspective on it?
0: Sure. So um, the background concern that produced the legislation was the concern that um, all kinds of people with um, varying views of um, feelings about and views of their gender, their sexual identity, have been hurt and damaged by other people who have wanted to change them and perhaps have indulged in fairly kind of intrusive, invasive, maybe even rather violent um, procedures to do that. So we can all understand that, I think. I, I, I would hope that not, no Christian believes in that torturing somebody else is, a, you know, is an acceptable thing. That's okay. Mm-hmm. The problem is the bill then got caught up with a whole bunch of rather sectional interests. Um, a lot of pressure was put on politicians. Some of them didn't need too much pressure, I think. But um, anyway, uh, the way the bill actually came out It is so badly drafted and so vaguely drafted uh, that it it puts all sorts of people in jeopardy who just don't happen to agree with some contemporary views of sex, identity, and gender. Not just Christians, but certainly including Orthodox Christian people. And in fact, the way the bill begins in the preamble really makes it look as if it is deliberately targeting people of uh, religious faith, Um, uh, which, of course, is more than unfortunate for the federal government to be taking essentially a religious position on anything is is very deeply concerning. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure we'll get into the detail, but the bill is designed to prevent people doing certain things to other people. But the trouble is that what is preventing people doing to other people is not clear, and it's uh, very intrusive in terms of people's rights and freedoms, and so on. That's the, the bottom line,
1: right? And even even the term like uh, conversion therapy, like what, how is that really broken down? How is how is Bill C four maybe even changed that definition? And what what would be considered conversion therapy before the bill?
0: Yes, well, conversion therapy used to be associated only with the idea of. um coercing people with same-sex attraction, um, and trying to change their feelings, change them into heterosexual people. Mm-hmm. That was a very that was how it was very narrowly conceived. The problem now is that it has drawn in the whole transgender thing, which of course is is like apples and oranges really, but everything is now under the same heading. Yeah, right. Um, because that's a And, you know, we can discuss why and how that's different. But also, late in the day, there was language put in the bill that actually talked about not being allowed to do anything that would repress or reduce attraction or sexual behavior. And you can immediately see that that puts a lot of perfectly respectable psychiatrists, counselors, doctors and so on in a a very difficult position because there are all sorts of people, for example, in regular counseling for sexual addiction. Um, And um, this bill uh, essentially discriminates against same-sex attracted people by saying that they alone can no longer get counseling for Mm -hmm. sexual addiction. Mm -hmm. So it's only one of the ways in which this is a very problematic piece of legislation.
1: Absolutely. And and this is why I think it plays into the, the religious aspects and the religious freedoms as well as because, you know, one of the aspects of the Christian faith is that a repentance from dead works, you know, like a, a departure from ways that do not honor God's design in, in any way, shape or form and an acceptance of who Christ is. And then living in line with, with God's original design, right? It's very, mm-hmm. maybe a very boiled down version of repentance, but um, it, well, you know, it's good to restate these fundamental
0: doctrines, though, because my impression is that right, left and center, Christians are losing a grasp of them just at the moment. And the fundamental problem absolutely. here is that Christian people in large numbers are buying into a view of identity that's not fundamentally Christian without even realizing fully mm-hmm. that that's what they're doing. Um, they they appear to be so poorly grounded in scriptural teaching in these areas, that they're just not paying attention. So fundamentally, the, the fundamental clash here is between those who believe what pretty much everyone has believed for most of history, mm-hmm. that our identity is a multifaceted thing, but it's bound up with objective realities, mm-hmm. right? like being male or being female or so on. We're now confronting a culture that has broadly come to believe that the individual decides on what their identity is by looking deep inside themselves. And so right. it's not even a, a social matter anymore. It's not that you're a member of a family primarily or a tribe or even a nation. Fundamentally, it's, it's all about individual autonomy and choice. Now, of course, the New Testament, the whole scripture stands steadfastly Against that idea. So we now have a clash, a fundamental clash, not at the level of talking about sex, but far more deeply. The whole question of what is a human being and how do we know mm-hmm. is really where this discussion ought to be. But on both sides of it, that's actually not where people go. Interestingly enough, we, we're, we're talking about the symptoms, as it were, without really talking about the fundamental issue.
1: Yeah, it's 100 percent. I couldn't agree more. Um, when, when I took in your presentation on, on this topic, you referenced the classic George Orwell book 1984. What, what is it about this book in particular that, um, that just makes it like, what is it about this book that just plays right into this conversation?
0: Well, um, 1984 plays into part of the conversation. I think there are other books that play into other aspects of it, and all of Mm -hmm. them are kind of weirdly prophetic because they're all older books, like Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. But when you think that these people were living in a very different world from ours, the the picture they paint of a future society is kind of eerily uh, recognizable. So Orwell, of course, paints this picture where the government uh, has complete control. So it's a totalitarian government. It controls language, and it uses language as it wishes. Uh, words come to mean what the party says they mean. Right. And anyone, you have to be very nimble on your feet, as a and not to end up getting locked up, because words can mean one day completely differently from what they mean the following day. And then the party that's in charge, of course, has this, um, propaganda thing going on whereby it has what we now call TV screens, but well, you know, this was way back, right? Mm-hmm. 1930s. Uh, so the the message of the government is, is continually proclaimed in the streets, and in people's homes by way of these uh, screens. And even the whole notion of objective reality has disappeared. And so at one point, the, the central character of 1984, Winston, Gets told by the party official O'Brien that if the party says that two plus two equals five, then it is. So it's not just language; it's also mathematics. Now, mm-hmm. you look around our culture, and many of those elements are are definitely at work Absolutely. here: the, the slippery nature of language, um, the increasingly um, authoritarian nature of government, intruding quite happily into. Areas that our Charter of Rights and Freedoms appears to forbid it from from doing, but nonetheless, there it is. It's the government's doing it anyway. Uh, the control that that our social media screens and our TV screens and so on exert over us. If we ask, why are so many Christians losing the plot on a Christian view of the human person? The answer, I think, is largely that they're being indoctrinated by what they're watching on TV and. Mm-hmm. What they're seeing in social media. Yeah, they're being shaped by it, uh, being conformed by it. So it's one of these novels that if people have never read, they probably read it in high school and hated it because nobody yeah. ever explained it. And who knows anything when they're fifteen? Yeah. But everyone should, <laughs> everyone should get that book back out and reread it. Absolutely, absolutely. In my, in my opinion. So. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. I um, you know, even in the book, and I, you referenced it in your presentation, but like the term new speak, and double yeah. think. Can you yeah. unpack those those two, two ideas for us? Well, new speak
0: is the new language that the government basically introduces. Um, and so, as I say, words don't mean what they meant before. And everyone is scrambling now in the book to work out what the words do mean and whether they're using them correctly. And of course, we live in a world where correct language is absolutely becoming central, right? Mm. Not substance necessarily, but correct language. So Newspeak represents that. And the point of the government in involving in this is they know that by narrowing language, they narrow people's capacity to think. Yes. And so what they're looking for, of course, is correct thinking at the end of the day, not just correct speaking. Double think is the necessary skill whereby you can think one thing one day and next day think a different thing because you've worked out that's what the party wants. And you're able to live like that somehow because your survival depends on it. mm -hmm. So I think we see new speak and double think around us all the time. and even the, the the commitment to coherent rationality appears to be uh, up for discussion.
1: Well, um, absolutely. And, and I, I think a perfect example of that was in the recent uh, Supreme Court nominee um, who's since been affirmed into her position in the US, but was asked the question, what is a woman? And she couldn't answer that question. And her reason was like, well, I'm not a biologist. And so it's like, well, we're not asking for like a micro level breakdown of the complexities of the human uh-huh. cell and all this stuff. We're just talking about like, what's a yeah. woman,
0: you know? And it's Yeah, well, the same thing is true of the Labour Party leader in Britain. He was unwilling to state exactly. He was asked this on. And this is where we've got to where our senior politicians, the people who are actually leading the country are unwilling to make perfectly factual statements about biology that's how that's how bad it is um so this is i mean this two plus two equals five thing is is not this is not a fictional thing this is now
1: a reality in our midst Mm -hmm. right yeah um so yeah i um an interesting connection too with the in orwell's book um is the ministry of truth right so it's this almost Mm. like this enforcement and this um this appointed arm of the government meant to ensure everyone thinks correctly. And, Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's also pretty, pretty easy to see today too. I even just, just today I saw um, in the department of Homeland security as a head of disinformation, I'm going to get her name wrong. I think it's Nino uh, Jackowitz, but she referred to this quote unquote misinformation that's flowing throughout society, which is really only, pointing towards one side, one side mm. of an argument, but mm. she's calling it a threat against democracy and national security. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so like, what's, what's your take on, on all that?
0: Well, I mean, the trouble with the ministry of truth in the, in the novel is that its task is to lie. So there's an example of new speak and double think right away. And the, the problem is that in this post-truth society that we're suddenly living in, where Notions of the rootedness of words in, in objective reality, the rootedness, uh, the, the possibility of facts that we might agree on, the commitment to discovering the facts, all of these things, even among those who are still interested in living that way, it's becoming remarkably difficult to be sure that what you are hearing is true, mm-hmm. Right. And the disinformation is is all over the place. It's right, left, and center. Everyone seems to have learned that you can manipulate people more easily than you can argue them into a position. And so everyone's doing it. And I do think that democracy is not sustainable under those circumstances. Um, Into the chaos will inevitably come the strong people you know, with the with the with the heavy convictions, the, the the kind of charismatic leaders, the people with the guns, history teaches us this, and so we are playing at the moment with the very fabric of our 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 the post-Christian uh, Western societies, and I think it's inevitable because once you cut off the branch that is the Christian gospel uh, that you've been sitting on. Of, of course, the branch is going to fall. So um, I'm afraid that's where we are increasingly at.
1: So how, how do you see this playing in with Bill C4? Like to j- kind of jump back there a little bit. How mm-hmm. does this now intersect like with with what we've just kind of talked about with the new speak, double think? Where does it really now mm-hmm. weave into this bill? Well, I mean, some of it is plain misleading. Um,
0: For example, the preamble and the the language of preference is used in in the preamble. The language of myth is used of the views that they disagree with, which is a very interesting word to choose, right? Because they know very well that many people who disagree with them are religious people of various kinds. So Mm -hmm. there's a very misleading, um, is set up in a very misleading way uh that somehow it's a myth to believe that certain things are preferable as if we're talking about preferences here Mm -hmm. as if that describes in any way what an orthodox christian thinks about these issues right um it uses the language very common in the culture of you know your sex being assigned at birth well nobody assigns a sex at birth i mean it's not that the baby is born and then a committee is formed yeah. to assign sex. I mean, this is just misleading, nonsensical yeah. language. It's new speak. Right? It's using words in a way that looks vaguely familiar but is actually deeply misleading. And then a lot of the language is misleading just because it's vague. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and you you could drive a truck <laughs> the problem with the bill is that good legislation and we've all, we've always held this to be true in our juridical theory that every citizen should be able to know in advance whether they have committed a crime
1: yeah
0: it's only reasonable right, right. that everyone it should not be arbitrary you shouldn't be surprised right there should, we should go by precedent with that is a stable predictable enterprise. Everyone should be able to know in advance exactly where they stand. Well, this law is entirely of a different nature. Mm -hmm. It, It leaves things very uncertain because, of course, the definition refers to practices, treatments, and services designed to do a bunch of things, which are then listed and nobody really knows what practices, treatments, or services those words mean because they're not defined in the Criminal Code of Canada elsewhere. So, does praying with somebody count more than once count as a practice? Well, maybe. Right. Uh, does parenting over a week or a month count as a practice? Very likely. Mm-hmm. See what I mean? It's incredibly unhelpful, and then. In some ways, even, and it's hard to be worse, that's the wrong way of putting it but. Equally bad, shall I just say, is the idea that recommending any of these things to a third party is now a criminal offense. Yeah, so somebody comes to you for help and or advice, and you say, "Well, I did speak to this counselor and and the counselor was really helpful with my teenager on this issue of gender dysphoria. So maybe you should speak to it. so is that person now?" recommending conversion therapy, perhaps. The thing mm. is, nobody really knows. And right. that is, um, that just that's bad legislation. And of course, what it does is it makes everyone try to play safe, right? So mm. you're not quite sure. So you take a position way over here to try and avoid the possibility of being caught out. And what happens after that is people begin to find that counsellors won't speak to them about Issues like this. They won't see their kids.
1: Yeah.
0: Pastors begin to to stop talking about issues like this. The, mm-hmm. the church counseling service begins to be very, you know, cagey about talking to anyone about, about sexual matters. Um so um that's how the bill broadly intersects yeah. with what we've just been talking about.
1: Absolutely. So it's not only damaging in the sense that it. <clears throat> Uh, comes against someone's, you know, free, free will to think and to reason of their own accord. But the, I also see the greater fallout is it's damaging towards children. Mm -hmm. um, And it's also damaging towards those who are actually legitimately struggling. You know what I mean? Because I think this is, this is the hard part is, we get the activist side mixed in with those who are really struggling. And it's and mm. you kind of kind of lump those all together. And I don't think everybody who is struggling with gender identity or the sense of being disconnected from their physical body and their personhood is an activist. You know what I mean?
0: They're- no, exactly not. But the vast majority are not. And uh, and that is exactly the situation. And what we have here is a, a piece of legislation inspired by activists. Um, who have managed to persuade the people in power to put certain wordings in here. The great majority of people caught up in issues of, of uh, sexual identity confusion or same sex attraction and so on. They find themselves with a set of issues to deal with. They're not activists yet. They're simply wanting help to deal with the stuff. Mm -hmm. And, The, the system of counseling and so on, whether in the church or outside, has been set up, like 99% of it has been set up to listen to people, to help them process it, to help them think through, uh, to tell them the implications of their choices. If they make them telling the truth, for example, about what transgender transition really looks like, um, all of that is now under threat because nobody knows yet what's really illegal. And we won't know until some legal precedents get laid down. So some poor, unfortunate person or group of persons is going to go through the trauma of prosecution, you know, and nobody knows who it will be. And and will it be a pastor? Will it be a grandmother who refuses to let her grandson go to, to elementary school you know, with makeup and high heels, nobody knows whether these are the things that will be the touchstone.
1: Well, absolutely. And it's like, you know, even in this conversation, who knows? It might be you and I. Nobody
0: knows about this conversation. Yeah. But here's the thing. If we give up our free speech voluntarily, then we have given up the whole game because without our freedom of speech, we can't protect all the other freedoms that we claim to have. Yeah. So the worst thing that can happen here is self-censorship. Uh, Mm. uh, We must be brave, uh, all of us who are in Christian leadership positions, because our sheep are depending on the shepherd to take Mm. a lead and we cannot abandon them. So, of course, we should. And in any case, without legislation, of course, we should avoid reckless speech. And of course, of course, there's a whole bunch of things that most of us, most of us Orthodox Christian people agree that. We should conduct ourselves in a Christ-like mm-hmm. way at all times. So we, don't, we shouldn't need legislation to scare us into doing that. Absolutely. But, but if it comes to the crunch of, you know, do I continue to teach people uh, the biblical Christian way of handling matters of our embodiment of all kinds,
1: yeah.
0: of which our sexual stuff is only a part, do I continue to exhort the youth in our church not to buy into you know modern critical gender theory and stuff because it's false
1: mm-hmm.
0: and misleading um we we must stand firm um on, on all of this and then we will have to see whether our charter of rights and freedoms actually means anything right uh, and if it doesn't well
1: the problem is bigger than we thought right so
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah well, and you, you've brought up a very good point, you know, even about the embodiment and the image, the, the image of God that's, with on, that's within humanity, you know, God put, we're made in, in God's image according to Genesis, you know, chapter one mm-hmm. and 20, verse 26, 28. But mm-hmm. like, you know, I think that's actually a really hopeful thing because even as I referred to before with gender theory and gender confusion and, and everything, it's that separation between your body made in the image of God and your personhood made in the image of God yet Christ, you know, through the gospel sanctifies us, brings us right back together. And that's where we find, we, excuse me, if we find wholeness. And I think this is the, this is the good news is we have a great opportunity for the gospel of Christ to go forward speaking directly to these issues. Cause I think a lot of times we've seen it as two separate things. Like this is somehow Hmm. uh, an area of life and existence or sin that just is not connected to the gospel. You know what I mean?
0: I think this is a great moment of opportunity for the church, because if you ask what are the underlying social, political, personal realities that are leading to this upsurge of uncertainty about identity, what's going on underneath? I think we're now seeing the long-term effects of the disintegration of the family, the disintegration of our sense of community, one with the other, the effects of social media addiction. All of these things are at last, as it were, colliding together to produce enormous unsettlement and confusion. People don't know who they are because they don't really know, in a sense, who their families are, who their tribes are, what they're part of, and so on and so forth. And then... The whole gender theory stuff comes in further to confuse them and to actually sanctify their confusion in a way by by saying, no, actually, what you're feeling, yeah. this is the solution to what you're feeling. So I think the thing here, once again, is not to be distracted by the symptoms. Uh, what people fundamentally need is to be part of the community of the church that is centered around the lordship of Christ. And in that new community where people are loved and respected and so on and challenged and there are boundaries in that functional, Mm -hmm. healthy Mm -hmm. human community to learn, like all the rest of us do, to learn how to handle best their dysfunctions of whatever kind. So we mustn't lose sight of the ball here. Uh, If we give into fear, if we give into anger for that matter, if we give into the idea that This is really a conversation about sex, but when it's really not, not fundamental. I know it is, Mm -hmm. but not fundamentally, it's not. Um, So all of that, I I think. But then, of course, if we ourselves don't have the plot right, we can't do it. So on this business of not taking embodiment seriously, well, the church has been here before. This is gnosticism this is the yeah. earliest heresy that we exactly. know about in the church is the, is is this heretical idea that who i really am is a soul imprisoned in a body and the early church yeah. i mean these people th- they claimed to be christians the, the gnostic was not their own self necessarily their self designation or it was only part of it they thought to themselves to be true apostolic christians and this is how they, they held themselves and conducted themselves. And the early mm-hmm. church said, well, no, this is fundamentally wrong. You're yeah. not a soul trapped in the body. Yeah. You are an embodied person, right? So this is why the scripture tells us not to look inside ourselves to find out who we are, but to look to Christ to find mm-hmm. out who we are. So there's, there's the second fundamental problem. We ourselves are confused about some of the most fundamental aspects of Christian truth. And we have to get our act together in terms of Christian education yeah. and stuff. And yeah. just tell people, you know, that's not true because this is true, right? Both of them together,
1: mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I just have a couple more questions um, this before we, we kind of wrap up here. This has been a really great conversation. I think the observation I've had is there's a lot of um, ideas, legislation, even just, yeah, ideology, I would just say that way, that comes out in some really interesting terms that are kind of hard to stand up against. Like we have anti-racism bills and we have, you know, anti-bigotry or anti-this or that. And it's just like, how, because it's like, who wants, who's going to stand up against an anti-racism bill? Like, you know what I mean? It's just like, you want to be yeah. that guy. stuff, but. Unfortunately, there's these interweavings of, you know, for example, critical race theory that I think, in my personal opinion, substitutes one Mm -hmm. form of racism for another, and it doesn't actually deal with racism. Um, You know, there's all these different these. Yeah. These ideology that is, you know, as I heard you say before, you know, is taking precedence over science, but it's also taking precedence over, you know, Philosophy and human existence, right? Like all these, all these different things. But how do we as Christ followers navigate the difficulty of how some of these? Well, things I mean, are that's packaged? a great
0: example of the need not to be drawn onto somebody else's territory um, in in discussing stuff mm-hmm. as Christians. So you're right. Who wants to be the guy or the girl who's against anti racism, or I assume, therefore, for racism? So we have to refuse to begin there. That, that's like beginning a conversation with the old thing about, you know, when did you stop kicking your dog? You know, it, it implies that this that I ever was, yeah. in fact, assaulting my dog, right? So um, yeah. we have to refuse to do that. And, and the, what you just said is exactly the kind of thing we need to educate people to say. Without education, people will always be pushed onto the defensive and then they'll get afraid or angry and it won't go well. But calmly just mm-hmm. saying, well, if something like you just said, well, of course, I don't think we should be racist. Of course, that's right. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think anyone should be racist to anyone else. So can you tell me, please, why your anti-racism bill appears to be saying that racism against white people is OK? Isn't that just really? racism or are we now in a new speak, which mm-hmm. we are, by the way, we're in a new speak situation there. Right. Yes. So of course yeah. we are against, we're entirely against racism come to our church and you will see uh, the most variegated diverse population, probably at least in Vancouver, lower mainland. Yeah. Um, and you'll see yeah. them all getting on with each other because we're focused around Christ and our solution to racism, of course, Deals with the fundamental problem, which lies in the human heart. How does your law deal with the problem of the human heart? Do you think you make people non-racist by legislating? That doesn't seem very realistic to me. And so the this no. the trouble is the truth always requires a paragraph. And what people want to trade in at the moment is slogans, right? And there's the fundamental. Mm. One of the fundamental problems. So I think we have to raise our game in terms of Christian education, um, Christian apologetics. Why do we believe what? Well, what do we believe? <laughs> Number one, why do we believe it? Yeah, is it credible? Is it more credible than what other people are saying who are attacking us? So can we winsomely to those who are even slightly interested in hearing from us? Can we, first of all, explain it to ourselves? Can we, second of all, when called upon, explain it to somebody else? We are not racist. We're not misogynistic. We're not anti-gay. We're not any of the things that you have learned to to say. And by the way, where did you learn to say all of that? Have you ever actually met a Christian? You ever been to a church? Would you like Mm -hmm. to come to my church? in the interest of research, yeah. just come along and see what it's really like, because yeah. I don't think you're being told the truth about Christians. This is this is the kind of response we no. have to, to give in a measured, loving, Abs- absolutely. I'm not threatened by you kind of tone. I'm not threatened by you because yeah. actually I think this is true and good and true and good for you. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. no reason for me to be defensive
1: about this. Right? No, absolutely. Absolutely. But I think in some ways you answered this this last question, but I'll just maybe throw it out there and see if you have anything else you want to add to it. But what would you say uh, to church leaders and pastors today and how how can the everyday Christian kind of take action?
0: I think pastors and leaders and and elders and, and youth leaders and all the folks in charge of stuff have to, in some ways, stop being activist for five minutes and actually think and reflect and consider what is it we are currently dealing with? What is the nature of the situation? In any job, we can just get busy with the job, right? And goodness Mm -hmm. knows there's plenty of work to be done. The problem is, if we want to be prophetic, if we want to see clearly enough in order to be prophetic, to see the need of the hour and, and to respond, We need to begin to practice disciplines that that, that keep us in that spot. I think if people begin to do that and we can really have more conversations like one that you and I are having, it will become clear that the greatest of our failures is our failure to educate Christian people sufficiently deeply and broadly and well. We have delegated education away to the state largely uh, when we have. Uh, When we've wanted Christian education, it's typically been for our kids, but not for the adults. Not really. Um, We are trying to deal with a cultural tsunami, largely still with one sermon a week. And maybe for the Keeners, midweek Bible study, maybe. I mean, Mm. when you say it out loud, you realize that's ridiculous. You, You realize that can't possibly work. Yeah. Because at the same time, people are spending 25 hours on Netflix, you know. So who's catechizing whom, right? So Christian education for everybody as a fundamental part of our discipleship is one of the absolutely necessary things we need to do. As part of that, learning how to do apologetics, learning how to deal with the complicated world where many people we bump into, even our own family now, are going to have utterly, utterly mm-hmm. different convictions from us on things like sex and identity. How do we, in fact, do that without capitulating? What would the grounds be for not, mm-hmm. not capitulating, actually? You know, so to me, that that's a fundamental thing. Not the only thing. I, I don't think the church should give up on political action and discourse. Or I think Christians need to be involved in trying to form good legislation instead of bad legislation. I don't think we'd be shy about that. I know mm-hmm. some people are nervous about the church and politics, but as I said to, I wrote a blog for my own church website and I said, it's one thing for you to say that, you know, we shouldn't be involved in politics, but what if politics comes and knocks on your door and demands entry to your home? What then? Mm. And that's where we are. Yeah. So yeah. Wake up, smell, the smell the coffee and learn from the church yeah. before us. In similar situations from scripture yeah. and from church history, what do we have to do? Yeah. We need a new reformation to put it another way, a new reformation. Yeah. So
1: Yeah. Well, I couldn't agree more and I'm so thankful uh, Dr. Provin for your um, yeah. Your just willingness to come on the show and, and unpack your wisdom on this topic. So Thank you so much for doing that. For our listeners, how can they stay in touch with you? How can they follow your well, work I mean, I, and uh, maybe, even sign up, maybe even sign up for Legion College? Well, I'm today. not a
0: blogger uh, yet or anything, so I, there's nothing really to follow. I do have a website, which is very simply my two names, Ian Proven. They're both funny names. So you'll have to maybe send your listeners a written version. Ian, yeah, ianproven.ca. We'll for sure. But that's not really a, a kind of active kind of conversational website, it's more just a kind of description of who I am and what my books are and and all that kind of thing. Some of my speaking engagements when I remember to post them there. Um, so that would be a way to, to do it. Um, I'm actually retiring this year. I have been 25 years at the college. So I'm retiring at the end of the year. Wow. And, Congratulations. Um, in the meantime, for the rest of this year, I'm going to be abroad quite a bit and not terribly actively in touch with people but nonetheless if somebody wants to email me via my website i will do my best to reply in some way
1: awesome well again thank you so much for coming on here it's been a real joy and uh i think it's been challenging it's been it's been inspiring because i think you know there's something knowing that we've been here before as a church it kind of gives you some you know, somebody's walked this path before so they can navigate this if we follow or we can navigate it if we follow in their same footsteps. So um, thanks so much for just unpacking this all. It's been a great conversation. Great pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to the Union Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you please email us at podcast at theunionmovement.com. For more information, please visit our website, theunionmovement.com, or find us on Facebook and Instagram at The Union Movement.